Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Rachel Burvell. She is a resident physician. She's a graduate of Harvard University for undergrad. She then completed a master's degree at Georgetown University before attending University of Illinois, Chicago for medical school. Dr. Burvell is the co-host of the Black OBGYN Project. Uh, Definitely check out their Instagram page. And she is uh, the page lead for that program. Dr. Burvell is very passionate about advocacy and health equity in medicine, especially when it comes to maternal health and well-being. And she's here to, to share her passion with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Well, well first we got to start with Harvard. How was that? <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> I don't think Harvard's ever easy, no matter where you are or who you are. But it was definitely a humbling experience. I actually went to college a little bit younger than my peers and colleagues. I was um, 16 okay. when I entered. Um, and so I not only had this first experience living on my own by myself, but I was on the other side of the country. I'm originally from the Seattle land area, Pacific Northwest. Um, and it was, a, it was a good time in retrospect of me like growing up, learning what I was interested in, um, making lifelong friends. I'm very close with the women that I lived with all four years, actually, um, and and kind of having a good support system in that way. And going from there and entering into medicine with a new perspective, I, I owe a lot to my undergraduate experience. Yeah. So when you, what, how did you know you wanted to go to Harvard at 16? Did you have a list of schools picked out? And obviously you were, you were advanced and you were able to consider college at 16. I think I barely considered colleges at, at 18 and a half, but how'd you pick out Harvard? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's such a good question. Um, how did I pick out Harvard? It's funny you ask because I actually mentor, one of my passions is mentoring um, young women of color that are interested in STEM fields. And one of my most recent mentees just got into Brown and she's in the eight year program where she's, going to be there for undergrad and medical school as well. And I'm trying to help her go through, you know, when she was deciding between all these amazing programs and uh, and institutions, how she should choose her undergraduate place of residence for the next four years. And I'm trying to think back on myself, like, how did I choose it? (laughs) And to be honest, I think I did not um, necessarily have like Harvard as my dream program forever and ever and ever. But I definitely knew that I wanted to be in a place that would challenge me. And I think I say that about everything at every step of my life, whatever that means. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to go to Berkeley really, really badly Um, and um, was like, this is my school. This is my place to be. Um, But I think the the point is I, I just wanted to be somewhere where I could find a great community I could be challenged, whatever that meant in my 16-year-old mind, and experience something new and, and almost novel. And I think that's kind of what college is all about. And so that's really how I, how I chose Harvard at the end of the day. Um, and no regrets. <laughs> yeah. So then four years later, you graduated at 20. 
Yes. So I graduated at 20. Um, it was so sad. My senior year, I was not able to go to like any of the <laughs> like senior oh, no. week activities because I wasn't 21. So <laughs> that really, I was, it was a group of, I think they said 11 of us. <laughs> it was really sad. Okay. But, you guys had uh, yeah. Shirley Temples and <laughs> still, still found some way to celebrate, I, I hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> And after um, finishing at Harvard, you went on to Georgetown to complete a master's program. I think this is probably the first time our paths crossed because I was at Howard University for med school from 2010 to 2014. And when were you at Georgetown? I was there from, gosh, 2013 to 2015. So we overlapped by a year. Yeah. And then I guess you followed me to Chicago. So I was at University of Chicago for residency, <laughs> and you attended University of Illinois Chicago for medical school. Yes, yes, and I absolutely loved Chicago. Um, I think we <laughs> had a moment before we we pressed record to talk about the great things that the city has to offer. Yeah, Chicago is definitely a vibe. Um, when it comes to you know your pathway, at what point? Did you know you wanted to specialize in in women's health and and focus in on these healthcare disparities that are too common in our community? Absolutely. You know, that's such a great question because I think that it actually is a a larger question for me. It almost goes back to why I decided to be a doctor in the first place. So I grew up in an immigrant household. My parents are from Ghana, West Africa, and that plays such a big role in my identity for a good chunk of my childhood, my grandmother helped raise me and she, my, my mother's mother, and she was really a, an amazing example of what it looked like to both be a caretaker, to have altruistic values, to be compassionate. Obviously she's taking care of me and my younger brothers. Um, and that's no easy feat when you're an aging woman. But in addition, you know, she didn't really, she didn't speak any English actually. And, you know, she was able to still translate and communicate to us that caring for other people should be of the most importance. And when she went back to Ghana, she took a couple of teddy bears with her and that kind of started me off on forming a nonprofit organization, which I did in high school. And then in addition, um, unfortunately, years later, she passed away to poor healthcare delivery in the Mm. um, developing country, which is not a narrative that's unheard of abroad. Um, I think we talk about it very differently when it's here in the United States, but when we right. talk about what healthcare access looks like or resourcefulness or healthcare knowledge and competency, it's it's very different in a global health setting. And that was when I was like, no way, Jose, I need to really put my foot out there and try to make an impact in changing these narratives that I was starting to learn at age 12 was just, at age 12 to 14 was just so common. You know, everyone has a relative who they have to buy IV drip. You know, that's what you do. You go to the hospital, you're sitting in the waiting room. The staff is worked, overworked and overtaxed. And you need to do the bone breaking job of going around looking for the normal saline for your loved one. And that's frustrating. And so I went into medical school knowing that I wanted to be a physician that really addressed inequities in healthcare at every level. And you can do that in so many different specialties, but 
one reason why OBGYN was so attractive was to me is because number one, the disparities are very apparent Mm -hmm. within that specialty. Number two, I mentioned that I came from an immigrant household in Ghana. Actually, it's a source of pride for me. It's a matrilineal society. And so women are really have dominion over much of the community. They are seen as leaders. They're seen as um, individuals who can carry the torch forward. I think you've probably heard of the the quote, you know, if you teach a woman, you know, you teach the world or a, a variation of that. Or if you educate a woman, you educate communities, you educate the world. You know, that comes from a Ghanaian scholar with the understanding and knowledge that women are central in our opportunities. And so for me, I took that a step further and said, women are central in our wellness, in our in our yeah. ways that we can maintain and attain, if it's unreachable, being well and well-being. And so that's what really put me on the trajectory of OBGYN. In addition, I myself being a Black woman, it's something that I can identify with. I think too often within and this is a big generalization, but within the African-American community, within the Black community, within African, Afro-Caribbean communities, there is not enough discussion about our sexual and reproductive health and well-being. And I think that often there's a sense of either shame or feeling like this is a conversation that is not the right time, but then it's like, when is the right time? And so I wanted to be a reflection to my future patients who would be of all ages, um, again, mostly women or people who were also kind of going through their transitions, whatever that looked like, and be an advocate for them. And OBGYN has so many opportunities for advocacy, both politically as well as socially. And so that's really what introduced me to obstetrics and gynecology and I I do think that it's such a powerful specialty because you can address and answer so many questions and so many points. And that's what I want to do with every day. Like I said, I love to challenge myself. And so I want to be somewhere where I'm constantly pushing myself to ask a new question and critically think and be intellectually curious. That's who I am. And while you're at University of Illinois, Chicago for medical school, you had these passions brewing and developing, what did you do in addition to your clinical rotations in medical school to start affecting change or to learn more about these areas? Absolutely. So I I loved being at University of Illinois, Chicago. You know, if you're familiar with Chicago, there's so many different neighborhoods there. And unfortunately, there is in a way, a lot of community segregation. But one thing that I loved Mm -hmm. about being at UIC is that I was part of organizations and groups and was a scholar and many of these programs that pushed me to learn about neighborhoods outside of the west side of Chicago, where I was doing my schooling. And so one of the programs that I was a part of was called the Patient Center Medicine Program. I was part of this all four years. And it's a, um, a service learning project where the first couple years you get partnered with a community organization and you try to establish some sort of health project. And you also get um, a longitudinal patient where you can 
take care of someone with many comorbidities. And so I had a patient who had multiple comorbidities. I was the one that would help handle all her um, appointments, make sure that she was coming to the clinic, make sure that she felt she was getting the right education when she left the clinic and understood what she needed to pick up from the pharmacy and how often she needed to take her medication. And then I also worked in a domestic violence shelter um, called Greenhouse Shelter in Chicago. It's one of the largest shelters for uh, victims and survivors of intimate partner violence. And I had the great opportunity to set up a clinical framework for how we as trainees in medical school could try to talk to these patients in very sensitive settings and how we could also be better providers once we got to our clinical rotations. And the back end of PMC, of PCM, the Patient Center Medicine Program, is doing more qualitative and quantitative research. And so for that, I worked at the Lincoln Park Homeless Shelter, and we taught chronic disease, nutrition, advocacy, um, health equity courses to these folks who were homeless. And it was so powerful because you would get questions as, as for us, so simple as, yeah, doc, I have never, because they always call this doc despite us being like, we're just medical <laughs> students. They're like, I have never understood how to read the, the nutrition guide. And so we would sit there and we'd hmm. say, the big number on the top represents calories. You know, the average you know, American woman or female needs anywhere from 2,000, you know, we just walk through it step by step and we would go through it with them. And then we talk to them about how can you find affordable food and make it healthy and try to combat diabetes and hypertension and all these other things that they were coming in the shelter because they're off the streets with. Um, and that was super, super powerful. And then my other engagements was with the urban medicine program. And this was, this is one of my really greatest prides throughout medical school. It's a group of selected 20 students from our class of 200 who are essentially scholars in understanding social determinants of health. That's kind of how they frame us. But then we get educated in what it means to tackle inequities within the greater Chicagoland area. And a lot of us kind of walked away. Some of us came in with MPHs, but almost all of us walked away being like, we pretty much got our MPH, <laughs> a master's in public yeah. health through this program. And for that, I was on the south side of Chicago. I was um, in the South Shore neighborhood, working specifically yeah. at um, Miles Square Health Center on 79th and Jeffrey. And we were the first cohort. It was me and two other students. We were the first cohort to be partnered with that clinic. And while there, we decided after doing a needs-based assessment of the entire neighborhood that we needed to set up a nutrition-based program where a patient would come in to Mile Square, which is a federally qualified health center, and they would identify as food insecure. And when they identify as food insecure to their practitioner, their doctor, their nurse, the MA who's doing their blood pressure, whatever... Then they would go on and fill out a form that we had made, which we called like the patient intake questionnaire, the PIC. And we would call them, you know, within a week to set them up with local resources that would allow them to be food secure or wow. to at least get through that next weekend, right? Depending on what they mark. Some of them would be like, I just need food for the month. You know, I, I'm, I'm okay, but I just need a couple more things. Some people are like, no, 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 no. I have an emergency now. And so we would do that, and it was so fascinating to see and hear from providers that my patient used to talk about how they were getting 
their food from the family dollar down the street because there was no grocery stores in this food desert. And now they feel like they can get some sort of nutrition because they are going to you and learning of this food pantry that's at the church just around the corner that they never knew existed. And now they're trying to do better with their diabetes and get that A1C down. And so that was incredible because Miles Square has since transitioned to be on Stony Island, for those of you that are familiar with Chicago. Um, okay. Stony Island and 79th, which is a little bit more of a busy corridor. But the subsequent cohorts of three students that are part of the UMED or the Urban Medicine Program have been able to get this huge grant through the Miles Square Health Center um, to do diabetes education. And it's just blossomed and grown. And that's been really humbling to see that something that I started with my team has since flourished and is impacting patients quite tangibly. So I think those two major activities, and there's been there's other things as well, but those two major activities during medical school helped me identify my passions in you know this type of work and <laughs> health advocacy and try to make sure that I was really being or training myself to be a doctor who's not just a leader in the consultation room, but understood what was going mm-hmm. on outside of that small clinic exam space. You know, there's so much happening in our patients' lives and we do a disservice and we don't think about it. Absolutely. You were, you were busy in medical school. I, I know I spent a lot of time on U Street, <laughs> uh, not nearly as productive. Um <laughs> But uh, after University of Illinois, Chicago, you went on to start a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. As a resident, all the information about um, healthcare disparities in Black maternal health, was it more or less apparent to you when you were taking care of patients every day? So I did my obstetric and gynecology intern year in Southern California. And it was a different patient population. And so I I won't say that I was actively seeing disparities, um, especially when it comes to black health disparities, the way I had seen it when I was in Chicago. But I was certainly seeing disparities, again, falling along racial lines, falling along socioeconomic lines, because a majority of my patients of color, especially, were Latina individuals, you know, people who spoke only Spanish. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I don't, unfortunately, I don't speak Spanish fluently enough to to do a clinical exam, but Spanish where I needed to use a translator. And so you have that barrier and understanding. Um, I had a lot of immigrants. I, I do recall having a lot of immigrants from West Africa, as well as the Caribbean. And so trying to remind them that, yes, you know, I know we love our foo-foo, <laughs> but we have to take a step back because you do have gestational diabetes and that's a lot of carbohydrates. You know, that was a lot of my conversations. And then also recognizing... The foo-foo is uh, the pounded yam? Yeah, yeah, that's the... <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> um, and, I only eat Nigerian jollof rice. So. Oh, oh, no, we can't be friends if you're only for the Nigerian jollof. <laughs> um, but... Also recognizing that I myself was a reflection of some of these disparities because I was the only Mm, black mm -hmm. resident in my program of 28. And so, yes, I wasn't necessarily seeing the same disparities with my patient population as I had expected from Chicago, but I was still experiencing what it meant to be in medicine. 
And unfortunately, medicine is full of a lot of gaps in care to whatever extent you want to talk about, right? And that also includes the workforce itself. Um, you know, I remember the first couple rotations, my first rotation um, of residency was an off-service rotation in the emergency room. And, um, you know, I did not have this experience, you know, explicitly where someone says, you know, are you the doctor? I think that happened to me a lot during actually medical school. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember one of the patients in the emergency room, I was like, hi, I'm Dr. Burvell. And she looked at me and kind of stopped. She's like, you're the doctor? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, oh, you just look so young, you know? <laughs> and I think a, yeah, a lot yeah. of people would say that. <laughs> I do look youthful. But <laughs> well, in, in all fairness, <laughs> you I, went to Harvard at 16. It's true, <laughs> true, true, true. Um, but, I, you know, I think sometimes you kind of take a moment and you're like, are they hesitating because they mm, are mm-hmm. yet to see a physician who looks like me? Or are yeah. they hesitating because truly I am a young doctor to them and they expected someone who was much more aged and, and could in some way, whatever it looks like, reflect wisdom from that. And so, you know, I think it's so important to, it was important for me to, to reflect on those experiences, both with my patients as well as um, myself as a, as a resident and a trainee. So Dr. Burville, you finished up that first year in obstetrics and gynecology, and then you ended up transitioning into family medicine residency. Um, what led you to make that switch? Yeah. So first, I want to preface this by saying I still think OBGYN is like the greatest specialty ever. Um, obviously, I run a whole Instagram page called the Black OBGYN Project. <laughs> and so <laughs> don't think that I, I left OBGYN because I was in some way disappointed with uh, the care that obstetricians and gynecologists provide. But what I will say is throughout my training, throughout my intern year, I was starting to recognize that I had great limitations in the type of care I wanted to provide my patients. And I always think of um, a partic- one particular patient um, who was 16 when she was presented to me. She actually presented to the OBED or the OB triage um, at 35 weeks pregnant and said that that was wow. the first time she was discovering that she was pregnant later to come out, come find out that that pregnancy was the result of an assault by her cousin. When we met her again during delivery, she actually ended up at that time being positive for syphilis. And so I booked her, you know, after seeing her postpartum booked her directly into my clinic so that I could see her throughout those six weeks postpartum. And for those that may or may not know, you know, you might see your physician only at the six week mark because things are great during your um, postpartum care or during your postpartum time period. But for this patient, she almost had to see me every week because we had to give her penicillin once a week do the, the three shots of penicillin, which is the treatment for syphilis, um, oh. for um, gestational syphilis, um, at least in her case. She was also an adolescent, so we wanted to follow her mood. She was more at risk for developing postpartum depression. And so at the very least, would not only just see her every week, but have to do mood checks and give her the Edinburgh um, 
survey to make sure that she was doing okay and talk to her about how she was adjusting with a young newborn when she herself was a child. And then, of course, doing all the other things that are required within the postpartum time period. And it was so actually heartbreaking for the both of us at that six-week mark. She looked at me and she was like, Dr. Burvell, you know, am I going to get to see you again? And in my head, I'm like, no. You know, first, she's our, she's a pediatric patient, and even if she needs to see an OB-GYN for, let's say, a pap smear, she doesn't have to do that because the guidelines say she doesn't start until age 21, regardless of sex, age of sexual debut. Number two, I don't know how to take care of her newborn infant whatsoever. I'm not a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, I did run across the hall to the pediatric clinic that day and tell the pediatrician because it wasn't documented in the baby's chart. I noticed that the baby was the child of someone who had just had syphilis. We want to make sure that baby isn't going to have congenital syphilis because she wasn't treated before oh, delivery, yeah. you know, all these little things. And But after that, I was like, I really don't know what to do for your child. I don't know what milestones to watch out for. And when it even came to some things that kind of intersect, like breastfeeding, I felt wholly inadequate and ill-equipped to really guide her appropriately through those stages and, and try to normalize that experience. And so I decided it was with those experiences, not just in obstetrics, but also in gynecology, that I felt like there was a disconnect with what I could provide in the maternal child health interface in that time period and what my training was providing me. And so that's why I decided, hey, I think family medicine might be a good um, almost compromise in a way because you can you still do and still get training in deliveries. You still get training in reproductive health and gynecology. But now I'll be able to understand how to treat hypertension and not just rely on labetalol because that was all I knew. <laughs> That's what we use in the ob guide yeah, world. You're, yeah, and you're, yeah. you're an anesthesiologist, so you probably know. Um, that was all I knew. and then hydralazine for uh, <laughs> exactly. 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 But it's like, how do you step out and realize now your patient's not pregnant? She can go back on labetalol, or not labetalol. Excuse me. She can go back on her ACE inhibitor because she's no longer pregnant. She doesn't have to worry about the teratogenicity of this drug, you know, but I had no experience. It was like, go see your PCP. And I just felt like we see women at such vulnerable times that it was hard for me, especially the way I was building a relationship with my patients to um, kind of let go of that relationship at that point in time. Yeah, and that speaks to an, an incredible amount of self-awareness where um, people kind of go down this pathway of sunken costs where I've, I've gone down this path, I'm going to keep going. But every now and then, you know, just step back and, and look around and say, is this really what's right for me and something I should continue doing or will I be better served and I can better serve others doing this other thing? So uh, very admirable of you to to figure that out. And along the way, you have still managed to continue building your platform and providing advocacy and uh, providing advocacy and furthering your work in health equity. You helped launch. You're the co-founder of the Black OBGYN Project, um, a, a fantastic Instagram page and resource that is, you know, just 
bringing awareness to these healthcare disparities. Can you talk about what led you to start this uh, project? Yeah. So I mentioned that I went to medical school in the Chicagoland area. And again, UIC is wonderful. I'm very biased. Can you tell? Um, Or I'm (laughs) not biased whatsoever. (laughs) But one thing I was proud of was being in an institution that was very diverse in terms of faculty and the trainees. And so it was not hard for me to find black providers who I wanted to emulate. However, when I started interviewing for OBGYN programs, I oftentimes was the only person of color in the room. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a reminder that in the quote unquote real world, right? Because UIC, as well as the Ohio State University, are some of the most diverse medical schools after the HBCUs. We were, I was already kind of couched in this experience, but in the real world, that's really not what's happening. In the real world, only 5% of physicians identify as Black or African-American or Afro-Caribbean. And so interviews were kind of jarring to realize that I was the only face that looked like me. My best friend from medical school or my closest friend from medical school, Dr. Tamandra Morgan, she's currently an OBGYN um, on the West Coast. And I kind of got together and we're like, you know, it's kind of hard to be the only ones when we're out here on the trail together. Why don't we try to make a group me for all the individuals who identify, who we see identify as um, Black or African-American while we're on the trail? And this was before COVID. So I think right now everyone's on group me, everyone's on these group chats because we're trying to stay connected. But back in 2008, it was like more you are in a group chat to tell um, each other what you're doing for your club. you know. Right. Um, and so we would go to interviews and if we saw um, someone who we thought may be black, which I know a, a bit problematic in and of itself, but we would go up yeah. to them and say, hey, we're making this group me and we would love for you to join so that you can have a community to talk to. And by the end of the interview season, we had over 100 black men and women Wow. We were together talking about everything from where can we get our hysterectomy numbers, where can we get the best training if we want to be family planning providers, to, hey, this program gave me Chick-fil-A for lunch. They were really doing <laughs> it right, you know? Um, and so when we met at the SNMA conference after matching in April 2019, a lot of people wanted to continue the community. We actually went to all get brunch together. It was about 20 of us um, over in Philadelphia and decided at that time that Tamandra and I would create an Instagram page that documented the experiences of Hmm. OBGYN trainees. But we quickly realized when we entered residency that it's actually a little bit hard to get people to, you know, do a day in my day in the life of <laughs> as a stories or and I think at that time we literally only had like a hundred followers and it was yeah. ourselves <laughs> and so people were a little bit hesitant to put their lives out on the internet or on social media platforms without something being tried and true but simultaneously we were learning about different months that commemorated black health like Black Breastfeeding Month, which is in August, as well as Black Maternal Health Month, which is April and the subsequent week that's within that time period. And we are learning about different 
disorders and, and disease states while residents that supposedly impact black women. Like we are being black as a risk factor, right? Like right. you have preeclampsia or risk factors for preeclampsia being black, like is explicitly listed in that bulletin, right? Um, you know, being black used to be a risk factor explicitly listed on the CDC website as a reason people had preterm labor. And you would start questioning amongst ourselves within the group chat or amongst ourselves between ourselves, Tamandra and I, like, why is this the case? And so we quickly started posting, especially on the stories, because it was easy for us as trainees to have something that was not so permanent out in the universe because mm, we mm-hmm. wanted to cultivate a feed that felt permanent, but the stories could be more of a conversation. We quickly just started posting and resharing stories. And of course, um, you know, with COVID happening at the end of, or uh, the fall, uh, or not the fall, excuse me, the spring of 2020, these conversations started becoming mainstream where we heard people yeah. say frontline workers are black and brown and they're the ones that are getting the short end of the stick when it comes to COVID. And you start seeing, unfortunately, there was a a really big case um, in New York of a a black woman, this is during COVID, who passed away. Um, She died during childbirth. And immediately everyone was like, this is racism. Racism killed her. Racism in medicine killed her. And so you start having these conversations that are super nuanced. And then with the deaths of George Floyd and, um, you know, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, the Instagram page just kind of took off from there and since has had a life of its own. Um, and has had a exponential growth and, and kudos to you for coordinating the content. I do the social media for the Black Doctors podcast. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Social media is no joke. Yeah. My, so my little brother is on TikTok and he's trying to get me to Go over to TikTok because supposedly it's easier. <laughs> but I think, but I think um, Instagram is a great platform despite it being a little bit more work for all of us. <laughs> Got you. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned for the TikTok account. But in the meanwhile, definitely, if you're listening, go out and follow on uh, Instagram at the Black OBGYN Project, and you'll see the stuff that they're up to. They post fantastic. Uh, informational posts and and like she said, uh, generate conversations, conversations that need to be had that are that are overdue. Over the couple of years, you know, you've continued to use your platform to bring awareness to these issues, uh, whether through interviews, through other podcasts, through articles. Um, where are we at now? Because we've it's definitely been the headlines, you know, over the last couple of years about the increased rate of um, morbidity and mortality in black woman parturients. Mm-hmm. Are we starting to make progress on these numbers or, or is it all still bad? That's such a great question. And I think that I don't want to be negative in the way I answer this question, but I do think we're at a plateau but a plateau is better than an increase. And I say that we're at a plateau because the first way that you can change adverse health outcomes is by educating one another. And the conversation around maternal morbidity and mortality has become more mainstream 
especially within the last couple of years. I think it yeah. was back in 2017 that ProPublica did a, a huge investigation on black women dying in childbirth. And when it came out in 2017, for some subsets of the population, especially those that are interested in public health and health advocacy, they were like, this isn't new, right? This is information we have known. We know that black women die two to three times more than their white counterparts in childbirth. We know that the you know, issues extend also to newborn and infant health. Yeah. And so it requires us knowing that this is a problem. And then the next step is, okay, let's start setting up some initiatives that can directly combat these numbers. You know, even before then, you have to figure out what the source of the problem is. Why are these numbers so disparate? And so I think we've hit this plateau where people are actively trying to be better allies and also try to be better partners with patients of color. But the numbers are still really shocking and it's really hard to see. I think the, the March of Dimes, so Prematurity Awareness Month is every November and the March of Dimes does an incredible job every year of writing this very detailed report of the preterm birth rates around the country. And they go by states as well, giving every state a letter grade. And if I remember correctly, the overall U.S. grade last year was like a C minus or something. And they always put the racial disparities of preterm delivery in that report. And unfortunately, black women are always the ones having disparities at higher rates. Don't get me wrong, that number and percentage has decreased, you know, from it used to be one in eight babies was born too soon. I think now it's gone to like one in 10 or maybe one in 12. But it's still so much when you break it down by demographics and break it down by racial background. And so we have a long ways to go, but now we're talking about it. And that's a start. Yeah, so Dr. Bravell, if you could wave a magic wand and fix one thing, enact one uh, policy or or effect change, what would you do? Oh, wow, the challenge. So I think I would, there's so many interventions. I think one intervention would be to increase the diversity of the medical trainees as an intervention. I know that's only one way, that's only one policy. If I recall, I think it's actually Howard University has partnered with another organization to fund and increase the the amount of black providers that they are training in their incoming medical school classes. So Mm -hmm. continuing those type of initiatives because cultural competency is one thing, but cultural congruency in care practices is another. And that actually plays a large role in the way that patients experience care and the outcomes that result. When you have a black provider or a provider who is black and you are black yourself, for better or for worse, it's really sad to say at this very moment, but it does influence in a positive way your health outcomes. In fact, yeah. there was a study just last year that that talked about that, where black infants 
taken care of by black providers had better health outcomes than those black infants taken care of by white providers. And so I think by investing funds into health education, that's one way. I know you said one intervention, but just another intervention from the <laughs> patient side of things yeah, go ahead. Is, is improving health access. Because I think we're at this place in time where the systemic issues of our society, specifically systemic racism, right, the structural and the, the things that are in the, the organizations that we are part of, are still echoing in our, the experiences of our patient yeah. population. So the neighborhoods that they live in are not only safe, they're not, they're, they're not safe, excuse me, but they don't have access to healthy food. They don't have access to good education. And the hospitals that are serving those communities are grossly understaffed and they don't have the resources to make sure that they're taking care of this now complicated patient population. So I would love to put money towards access and care and resource and that's what we mean when we say health equity. And so yeah. those are the two things that I would, if I wave the magic wand and tomorrow things got better, kind of start things off. But I, I just do want to emphasize that it would not be the end all be all. You would still have to do a lot of work because yeah, absolutely. that's what, you know, that's what we have to do to fix things. <laughs> well, Dr. Burvell, it's been fantastic having you on the show and hearing your story and hearing one of the voices behind the Black OBGYN Project. I definitely want to have you and Dr. Morgan on for another episode, and we can dive deep into some of what you just mentioned. The healthcare disparities that we know exist, but what they look like on a granular, granular level, what they look like in hospitals that are underfunded, your community access hospitals. So that's going to be a very interesting discussion uh, from my own experience in community access hospitals or what's happening on labor wards and you know, staffing, anesthesia staffing, uh, OBGYN staffing, the pressures of how many ORs can you run a day for C-sections, all that stuff is going to be a very interesting conversation to have uh, in the future if, if you guys are interested. Oh yeah, we are more than interested. We will definitely be back. I think when you get into the granular things within OBGYN care, we can talk so much about disparities, like you said, from the management side, right, from the clinical effectiveness side, from yeah. um, understanding even just the numbers of health issues, right, the, the disease states that are impacting different patient populations and why that might be. Um, so the conversation will definitely be exciting and I look forward to, to being back here with you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Black Doctors podcast. Again, um, tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can keep track of your progress and the things that you're working on. Absolutely. So you can find me at the Black OBGYN Project. Feel free to also email blackobgynproject at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. Dr. Burrell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was fantastic. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.